You are listening to What is the Impact of MDB Lending? Brought to you by the EBRD. Hello and welcome to the latest in the series of digital conversations organised by the Office of the Chief Economist of the EBRD. Today we're looking at the impact of multilateral lending and how to measure it. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm the Managing Director of Communications for the EBRD. Now multilateral development banks were set up after the Second World War to be the original impact investors, fighting poverty or inequality, or more recently, climate change. In 2019 alone, joint MDB climate finance reached $61.6 billion. But what do those numbers actually mean? The 2030 development agenda calls for an increase from billions to trillions of financing, of course. But will the impact of that spending result in a corresponding increase in impact? Now more than ever, MDBs have a very important role to play. The COVID recovery clearly will be slow, it won't be easy. The climate emergency is here and national governments are dealing with growing mountains of debt. It is a perfect economic storm. How can we ensure that multilateral lending is really effective to help the world emerge from this crisis? How do we measure the impact of MDB lending? Well, today we have a fantastic lineup of guests with us, all of them with tremendous experience in the field of measuring and understanding the real impact of development. Dean Carlin is the Frederick S. Nemers Distinguished Professor of Economics and Finance at Northwestern University and President and Founder of Innovations for Poverty Action. Pavan Sudka is an environmental economist, banker, former special advisor and head of UNEP's Green Economy Initiative currently CEO of GIST Advisory, GIST, and president of WWF International. And Bayosu Yavorczyk is the EBRD's chief economist and professor of economics at Oxford University. Now, the other person you can see in the box here is Odile Renovasso, of course, the uh, EBRD president. Uh, And before we start our discussion, Odile, you're going to share a few views on this topic. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and uh, thank you for all our speakers and participants uh, that have joined us today. And let me share a few elements why for us, for an institution like the EBRD, the question is how do we, the question of how do we know that we make a difference? What is our impact is so important. It's a very complex question, but it's also a crucial one. Of course, I mean, every organization is accountable to its stakeholders and needs to show that it's fulfilling its mandate. But this is particularly important and particularly challenging for multilateral development banks, given their mandate complexity. Uh, For example, within the EBRD, uh, discussions between management, shareholders, independent evaluators, and others often provide clear evidence of the complexity, the complexity of the objectives. Uh, We have, I mean, multiple stakeholders, multiple objectives. And uh, so it's not so easy to to see what are we looking for and what, how do we measure our impact? It's complex, so it's complex because of this number of priorities. It's also even more challenging when we take into account that we have, I mean, not only our direct shareholders, uh, stakeholders like the shareholders, the management, uh, the staff, the countries of operation in which we are intervening. We also have external stakeholders, donors who contribute, I mean, define, give us some objective, um, um, external shareholders like uh, uh, NGOs, uh, civil society who have their own views on what should be uh, our priorities and how how to measure our impact. So that makes it, when this complex, rich, very rich, but very complex environment makes it uh, quite challenging. 
But it's also extremely crucial. And why it is so important for MDBs to measure their impact? First of all, because differently from a private company, private institution, profit, the fact to be, to have a positive outcome, to have to be profitable is not an objective per se for an institution. It's a good, it's a good result. And it's something uh, we are looking, I mean, we've been able to reach uh, in the EBRD, but it's not the purpose, the key purpose of the organization. And um, our key purpose, I think, is to de deliver a public, a public goods and global public goods, such as poverty reduction, tackling inequalities, helping to address climate change and environmental degradation, supporting uh, the private sector and, uh, and other uh, type of activities. That's one of the, I mean, one of the key objectives we, we have been set up to do that. The second feature we need to reach in our activity, and that's very important in the case of the EBRD in particular, is to, address, to be additional and to address market failures and not to act as replacing all the other players. So we are always uh, focusing on where do we have the most impact, where are we really needed, and where other, partner, other people, other companies, other stakeholders can do this without our intervention. This is a way to ensure that the public money, which is put in the MDB or in the EBRD, is used the most efficiently so as to address really market failures and not uh, replace and, and not crowd out other kind of investment or intervention. And last point is that uh, showing, I mean, being able to demonstrate our impact is also very crucial at a time where multilateralism is very often challenged, where there is a trend to say, well, maybe we are better, we are more effect effective when we work at the country level, that at the global level. Um, and I think that being able to show that um, acting in this multilateral framework is helpful to deliver some impact, some values, because we are building on a very broad experience, different countries' experience, and so forth, is, in my view, uh, very important. So that's why we are we, we are very happy today to have these um, talks and these uh, high-level experts to help us to navigate and to better understand how we can make progress um, in this area. And um, I'm sure that we will have a very interesting and very useful discussion for our own work and the way we, we, we address these uh, very uh, challenging but very important issues. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to say these few words and now I pass the floor to Beata. Thank you very much indeed, Odile, uh, for that and uh, for giving us those insights and a sign as well, you know, your presence here, just how important it is for us in the EBRD, this issue, and how seriously we take measuring impact. So welcome to our guests. Uh, all three of you have got a wide ranging experience in understanding and reporting impact, measuring impact, assessing it. And it would be great if you could share some of those experiences with us, um, perhaps just for a few minutes each to, to give us your initial views. And Dean, let, let's start with you. Hi, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with everybody. I really look forward to listening more than talking. So let me be as brief as I can. Um, with three opening thoughts that actually build, um, it was very encouraging to hear what you were just saying, Odie. And um, so the, the first is that, you know, MDBs, EBRD and others, ultimately about leverage. And this does actually make it harder to measure impact. And I mean leverage in two ways. One is recognizing that, you know, an investment in a certain, um, in, in anything is ultimately, um, there's co-investors, there's co-stakeholders. Co, co and, 
um, it's not it's, it's not always so, the right question to ask, what is the impact of that investment rather than asking what's the impact of the thing being invested in? Um, it's a bit tricky, of course, because if all of investments are co-invested with you know, for, purely for-profit, no public intention um, investors, then there's a, there's a question of additionality. So it is, it is you know, granted a tricky question, but I would, I would urge for emphasis recognizing this leverage on what is it that's being invested in. The second aspect of leverage though is about knowledge generation. And this is also feeds directly off of um, something that um, Odie was just saying. Uh, ultimately, the MDBs can provide huge public good by helping us learn what has impact and what doesn't. And then future decisions can be made better. And ultimately, that's really important. When you're asking the impact question, you really want to be asking this not for accountability purposes, but for helping inform the next decision. And that's where the leverage of the MDBs can be huge. Um, and that's, you know, it, maybe it's not going to come out of the investment money if that doesn't make sense for the returns there, but it certainly could come out of, say, retained earnings and things of this nature. The second point I want to make is just on attribution. Um, and, you know, attribution is the, the name of the game when it comes to measuring impact. It's not, you know, a lot of times we see impact analysis that follows um, people over time or companies over time and says, this is where they were before, we then invested and now they're up here. And that, that can lead to some really flawed evidence. There's underlying economic trends that can move companies and people up and down. Um, there's, if you're looking at impact on enterprises, you might just have a growing enterprise with strong, with strong entrepreneurial leaders. And they're the ones to get credit for the change in the outcomes, not, not the investment. And also there can be huge third party effects, which is obviously very important for anything in the environmental space, which I know is very important to um, EBRD. But also just think about it in terms of using say workers as a metric. If you make an investment in a company and say before we invested, they were, you know, had a thousand employees and now they have 20,000 employees. Do you, do you get to count the 19,000 employees? Well, there you have to ask yourself, what really is the company doing? What's the market failure they're addressing? Because if you did that analysis with Walmart, for instance, you would get the wrong conclusion. Um, there's strong evidence that Walmart has made the world a better place by lowering the price of goods, but not through creating jobs. They are a massive firm with massive number of employees, maybe you know, one of the world's largest. Um, but every time Walmart enters into a local economy, the evidence says that 1.4 retail jobs are lost. Um, now, that doesn't mean that's a bad thing for the economy because they're lowering prices for, um, for households but it does say that counting heads of employees can lead you quite astray. And then lastly, the third point is simply that impact measurement is great. And I know it's the name of the game here, but let's not lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of situations where the best evidence gathering that is needed for an investment might not be about asking an impact question. It might be about understanding better who they're reaching. It might be about understanding better the short run changes that are taking place as an immediate consequence of what the company is doing. It might be best done with feedback data to help improve whatever it is that they're doing. There's, there should be a suite of, of evidence that is brought to bear to help create better functioning companies and government programs and nonprofits for improving outcomes for everybody. And it's not just about impact. Thank you very much indeed, Dean, and, and very uh, interesting point on, on job uh, creation impact. And I think it's one we'll return to a little later on because it's a very live issue in MDBs. 
uh, how you how you count that in terms of impact. So uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll be worthwhile just returning to that shortly. Uh, but let's let's carry on with the initial thoughts. Bavan, over. Thanks. Uh, just a few words about impact, defining impact, and, and then I want to comment on a bit of my own experience measuring uh, corporate impacts um, on society. Uh, thankfully, there's a degree of congruence in the way that impact is being defined these days for those who, who care to, to look. It's whether it's the impact management project, IMP, or whether it's the Capitals Coalition, or whether it's you know, independent analysts like ourselves at GIST, or indeed whether it's Sir Ronald Cohen and, and his, his friends at the Harvard Business School. I think pretty much uh, recognizing that impact of an enterprise can be defined as the change in human well-being caused by the activities of that enterprise. And the change in human well-being needs to be measured in all its dimensions and not merely uh, the profits of the corporation. So you immediately begin into an expansion of what is impacted and what is impacted if you recognize that capital is an economic metaphor for value, what is impacted is different capitals. There's of course, the produced capital of the firm that is impacted for its shareholders. Now, there's also the human capital of its employees, which it engages. There's also the natural capital of the planet and of future generations that they use or improve, as the case may be. And last, and perhaps most importantly, is the social capital, if you like, the binding force between these three capitals. You can quite satisfactorily apply CAPM uh, approaches and methodologies uh, to make economic estimates of the value changes inflicted by a company's operations on human capital, natural capital, and produce capital. But when it gets difficult is on social capital, because that's all about relationships. And unlike, unlike the other capital, social capital doesn't generate revenues that you can model and, 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 and measure. So you need to work it, uh, in the words of Partha Das Gupta, in the absence of social capital, recognize that none of the other capitals are as effective uh, in generating revenues as when there is social capital. And that's basically the approach we follow. Now, this sort of uh, thinking is backdrop, if you like. The question is, um, is this the only one? And if it's applied, then how should it be applied? So firstly, I must point out that, you know, the, uh, as was summarized by the IFC in their, their paper from 2019, that there are broadly three impact measurement archetypes. One is targets where you can set targets and this has been done very effectively. So this is without any measurement or valuation where you can, as an NGO, say that I wish to increase the uh, availability of education to girl children under 13 to 50% by next year or by, by the next five years. Or if for that matter, if you're an MDB and you can, and I know that uh, EBRD has done so, uh, set yourselves a target that in your asset writing, you will direct in your case, 50% of your your uh, incremental lending towards green economy uh, sectors and map and measure that. And in fact, this has been an idea that's been going on for some time. I remember being contacted way back in 2012 by the IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank, and they had the idea that they should do pretty much that. And I helped them frame that, that concept and the approach. And I think that their targets in, at that time were 25%. They beat their target quite quickly and they came to 32% by the time our project uh, was over. So these are, this is an example of a target. Then another way of measuring impacts is ratings. And this is where it gets interesting, but also very confusing because there are more than 600, I kid you not, there are more than 600 different ESG rating methodologies. And uh, each of them will give you quite different results. And, and you, know, you can go to town comparing relatively respectable ESG rating, raters and 
compare a portfolio of 100, 200, or 300 stocks. And the result, if you plot them on x-axis for one rater and y-axis on the other, the result will look like a scatter diagram because of the number of different approaches being followed, the number of different assumptions being made, and the number of different aspects of impacts that are being measured. And each rater seems to choose their own. So this really tends to lead nowhere. And, and therefore, my advice to the MDBs is please don't go there because it's, it's a wild goose chase, it really is. The third approach, as, as detailed by the IFC, was what they call monetization. And that's the approach that my firm and I tend to follow, which is as far as possible and as far as ethical, try and estimate the value, the economic value of various uh, activities of the enterprise or interventions of the policy or impacts of the project, depending on what it is that you are evaluating. And that can be done. And uh, you can do that with increasing uh, help from big data. And that's certainly the way that uh, our approach has been. Remember that um, reporting impacts is the next thing. So many advocates of this, including Sir Ronald Cohen, uh, and the idea is that today we have, uh, thanks to IFRS and, and thanks to the IASB internationally and other such uh, accountancy bodies nationally, we have effectively a very narrow reporting where if you draw the world of impacts in terms of its four capitals and its three different ownership categories. By the way, that's the other dimension. Whose capital is it anyway? It matters whether it's a public good or a, or a club good or a private good, and you can map that out. Uh, if you do that, then you realize very soon that you're just through the, through, the, through the efforts of our accountancy bodies only looking at one corner of this four by three matrix of, of capitals. And that's a challenge because that is incomplete. And that's a partial view that always can mislead because you are ignoring externalities. Externalities, corporate externalities are the biggest free lunch in human history. We are talking about seven to $12 trillion worth of negative impacts due to environmental externalities every year from um, the, the large listed corporations, the, the seven, 8,000 listed companies. And uh, the, the other side of that equation is that externalities are the hidden alpha. So because today's externalities are effectively tomorrow's risks and day after tomorrow's costs, any C-suite uh, executive or any asset manager or any uh, asset owner that ignores externality is potentially asking for trouble in year eight or year nine of a 10-year horizon of a private equity fund or asking for trouble because you know, they don't see the impact on their portfolio of these third-party costs, which then become internalized. Externalities do get internalized by default by, by decree, uh, as in regulation, or, or by design, which I hope is the way forward. Um, but, and also by the other D, which is by disaster. <laughs> internalization by disaster does happen. Um, and that's not what you want. You want internalization by design. So um, my, my advice always is let's go with uh, measuring impacts. Let's see what we can do uh, to value using, um, using the disciplines that have been used, for instance, by the Inclusive Wealth Report of the United Nation or by the Impact Management Project. And these are consistent in terms of the four capitals that have been used for, for that. So there is, a, there is a consistency between the macro and the micro level. Thank heavens for that. Uh, so we can go forward. Next comes, and, and as Dean pointed out, this big chestnut of attribution, because yes, you can work out the impacts on society as in change in human well-being of the project that you financed or the company that you financed or the, the policy change that you've uh, engineered or, or supported or implemented. You can work all that out, but the question is how much of that is attributable to you? And my sense there is that so long as you're, you are stating a policy, an attribution policy and a standard that makes sense, common sense, and so long as you don't change it every year, 
it doesn't actually matter. So long as you state your assumptions very clearly that we are taking an attribution based on the total financing, our financing divided by the total financing, or our financing divided by the total debt, or our financing divided by some weighted average of the two. Whatever it is that you're stating, state it. And then please, please stick with it. So long as you do that, I don't think anyone, anyone in the NGO sector can attack you for, for doing what is a sensible and right thing. And at least it gives you a, a valid benchmark to go forward. So these are my, my initial thoughts. I don't know if there's time, but I'd like to come in at a later stage and give some actual stories of impact valuation engaged by companies and what it meant for them and how it changed them. There'll be lots of time for that, Pavan. So yes, sure. we'll definitely do that. Thank you sure. very yeah. much indeed. Beata. Um, Thank you, Jonathan. So let me bring the EBRD perspective to the discussion, right? So what's our mission? Our mission is to foster the transition to open market oriented economies. Now in the early 1990s, uh, measuring the outcome was relatively easy as centrally planned economies were moving towards um, market economies, you could have looked at you know, the share of private sector in GDP. And, and that would have captured our mission. But of course, as time passed by, as they made a lot of progress, as the world changed, we realized that promoting just private sector is not enough. And we, do re we redefined our objective in terms of six transition qualities, qualities we want to promote, we want to see in countries where we operate. And this is competitive, inclusive, well-governed, green, resilient, and integrated. Um, now, that these six qualities allow us to measure progress in transition and transition gaps. But here is the first challenge. Right? How, how do you measure that? So for the sake of argument, let's think about climate change mitigation. How would we measure progress here? Well, we can think about how far a country is from the net zero emissions target. Right? That would be an absolute benchmark. Or maybe we should look at where country is in terms of its nationally determined contributions. So commitments it made under Paris Agreement, right? That would be sort of relative to a national target. Or we could look at emissions intensity per unit of GDP. That would make things easily comparable across countries. Of the problem is that each of these benchmarks would give you a very different answer, right? So we actually don't use uh, these particular measures. This was just um, an illustration. We don't want to make a value judgment about you know, what the right indicator. Instead, we use a range of indicators for each transition quality to measure progress in transition and transition gaps. Now, the problem with that is that it's not very comprehensible to the outside world because the outside world thinks in terms of SDGs. Now, we may be tempted to communicate in terms of SDGs and try to attribute what we do to country level outcomes that map directly into SDGs. Here, the question is, are we large enough of a player to make a difference? Think about a large country like Turkey, our cumulative investment there amounted to less than 2% of annual GDP, right? And that's over six years. So is it really reasonable to expect that what we do would appear in national statistics? 
Now, with small countries, you don't quite have such a problem because we may be a large player. But there, the key challenge is attribution. And let's think of Lebanon, right? Lebanon is in a deep economic and political crisis. Presumably, they need our help now more than ever. And we can make a big difference if we pour money into Lebanon. But if you were to look at national statistics, they would actually look pretty dismal. Well, they would look pretty dismal because the country is undergoing a deep crisis, right? This doesn't mean that our activities have not made a difference. It means that in order to say something about our impact, we would need to ask where would Lebanon, where would Lebanon have been had we not invested? Right? And by definition, this counterfactual is not observable. Hmm. So this is you know, just one illustration of the, of the challenge we are facing. We, should, we cannot make comparisons you know, just before and after. We need to make a comparison to a counterfactual. Where would this country, this firm, this SME have been had they not received help from us? And attribution is the key concern and without attribution, it is difficult to talk about measuring impact using quantitative yardsticks. Thank you. Beato, thank you very much indeed. Uh, just a reminder, by the way, to everyone who's watching, if you're on Facebook and you want to ask a question, you can uh, put it in the comments section there. We'll pick it up. You can ask it a little later on. If you're on uh, Zoom, post your questions, of course, uh, in the, to the panel in the chat box here. We'll pick those up as well. It was very interesting listening to the to the three of you. And I just wonder whether we're all speaking the same language, actually. And actually, Pavan, from what you said, maybe it doesn't matter if we're speaking the same language as long as we stick to whichever language we're speaking. But one thing struck me, which was whether we have a, the same starting point, which is what we mean by impact, impact, whether we have a common understanding of what we mean by impact. And I'd be interested to hear what the three of you think about that. Pavan, why didn't you go first? I'd, I mean, I'd like to keep, keep it at a definitional level as, as what the Impact Management Project and others have defined, which is the same, Capitals Coalition and so on, which is a change in human well-being as a result of the activities of the enterprise. Now, you can substitute enterprise with uh, project, if it's the project that you're financing, or you can substitute it with a policy driver. And as Beat has pointed out, remember, this is about impact valuation. And by definition, impact valuation has always two scenarios. You're always comparing the scenario that you're trying to value versus the counterfactual. Now, you're lucky if the counterfactual is nothing, but then that hardly happens. There's always some counterfactual. And, and in the case of, let's say, uh, green carbon, I mean, the counterfactuals are well mapped and well managed, and you understand what is the ongoing rate of deforestation in various countries and so on. And there are other circumstances where nothing is well mapped or well managed. So you really have to put down your assumptions on what is the counterfactual. But once again, I, my advice is uh, not, not, to shy off, not to shy away from that, but rather to make it totally transparent. And uh, so long as we do that, and so long as our assumptions are, are sensible and, and you know, not, not showing any inbuilt in bias or, or attempt to, um, to inflate our, our own impacts, it's difficult to criticize that, so long as you keep it what it is. Uh, Dean, I saw you nodding, nodding there. Does that mean you accept? It doesn't really matter if we start from different positions. Um, no, I think I, I, I think with 
Pavan just said is perfect. Um, I I would add two things, but this is by but complete consensus with with you know, the way you described the issue and the counterfactual challenge and the need yeah. to debate your assumptions up front and then. Yeah. So the, the two things I would add, one is a little tongue in cheek and the other is um, a, a second category. The, the tongue in cheek comment is it's a little bit, I mean, we do want to, we don't want to fall prey to the animal farm um, challenge of, yeah. of um, defining the counterfactual, which is to say that, oh, you know, we're not really saying all counterfactuals are created equal. We, we are actually saying some are better than others. Better than others. Yeah. Right. Um, and so but that doesn't mean it's always possible. I mean, the, you know, the kind of the extreme version, uh, which near and dear to, you know, work I've done personally and many others, including, you know, the Nobel Prize last year is a randomized control trial. Um, but that doesn't always work, right? There's many scenarios where that's just not, not it just doesn't make sense for a given context. And so um, that doesn't mean that, 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 you know, that I'm saying, you know, randomized control trial does not dominate in all contexts. In fact, there could be some where it would be an absolutely like, horrible thing to do. Um, but it doesn't, you know, so we do have to exercise some, some judgment, but it is, but as a first point, and that's where I completely agree, it's just, just actually just stating the assumptions is, yeah. and being clear about them can go a long way. Yeah. This, the one thing I would say that I would add is the challenges on, on, on attribution, but I'm gonna now bring back some th other things you talked about earlier and say that I think that those are e equal weight, which is the scope of what you're measuring, the scope of what you're counting. And you alluded to some of this in your opening talk too. So I'm actually completely just regurgitating what you said on there, but I just think it deserves prominence alongside what you just said. Um, and this this gets at things like the, the Walmart example I gave, um, where you know, you're looking at impact on local employment you're looking, obviously the green economy has a huge amount of this. Now, here's the challenge, right? We, we would, you know, we would never end an impact analysis if we wanted to include everything. It would, it would be a never ending exercise. And for any given investment, we would, we would literally take the rest of our lifetimes to get everything perfect. So you have to exercise judgment as to what's, you know, what's the primary stuff and what's the other stuff that might be like, interesting to know more about and we'll put that on the side and, and maybe study it and think about it and try to build on it so that we can ever learn when is it important and when is it a rising up in magnitudes. But let's not lose sight of the fact that, you know, in, in a lot of situations, you can think about what the primary channels of impact are, how to measure those. They might be direct, they might be larger in the outside world where we need to think about these effects on other entities and and you know, to keep going with this jobs example on, on how do you measure not just employment in your institution and your firm, but you know, the economy, if, that's, if you think that's a relevant issue. And then, and then on other issues, which you might think are really interesting and, and maybe part of the story, but you know, really are moving the needle by one or two or three or 5%, you just have to say, okay, well, that's just, you know, we'll leave that on the side and, um, and we'll, we'll you know, we'll hopefully learn more about that as, as, as the world is a mosaic and all of these things are mosaics and we build and we build and we learn, but you, you do need to prioritize. And so that's a challenge also is figuring out where to do it. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things just as a, an example that I found whenever I'm sitting around a table with stakeholders planning out an impact evaluation and the topic comes, what should we measure outcomes of? Nobody ever takes ideas off the table. Nobody ever says, no, 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 let's remove. And I know the first rule of brainstorming is don't kill ideas, just let everything get added. But even when you get to the phase where you, everybody's put up their favorite metric of what the impact will be from this exercise, nobody then stands up and says, okay, 
can we now cut this and cut that and cut this yeah. and cut that? No, you just end up with this really long list. <laughs> all right, thank you, uh, Dina. Beata, the starting point in all of this, are we all talking the same language? Do we all have a shared understanding? So I think of impact as a change, hopefully positive change that we can attribute to our activities. Oh. And we can express this impact in quantitative terms, so as a figure, or we can express it in qualitative terms, right? It describe what has happened. And here I, I very much agree with Pavan. What matters very much in that case is being very open about mm. um, how we think about channels mm. and uh, through which it happens. But sort of to, to come back to Dean's point, right? How far do we want to measure? You know, one of my favorite examples is supporting digitalization in the banking sector, right? It is desirable for many reasons, even for COVID reasons, right? Because you know that sort of you, you limit transmission of, of the virus. Now, in the short run, digitalization is going to destroy jobs in the banking sector. But in the longer or medium run, it's going to make the country more competitive. It's going to make manufacturing firms more competitive because banking services are an input in every activity, including manufacturing. Um, so, you know, if you were to focus just on what's happening in the banking sector, you would be missing all these other effects. The challenge is that it takes time for these effects to feed into the manufacturing sector. And you know, while institutions like ours are often under pressure to, so, to show impact you know, in two years, next year after the project finished, real effects may be happening after five years. That's an interesting point on timelines, actually, and uh, we might we might come back to that as well. Now, let's um, turn a bit of scrutiny on ourselves and other MDBs. And I wonder what you all think MDBs are doing right in this area and what they would be better changing. Uh, Pavan, why don't you give a shot at that, first of all? What, what, where, what are we getting right? What are, what are we, should we be open-minded about changing? Yeah, I, I think one is that, and I'm aware that there is a, a, a project somewhere, I'm forgetting exactly what it's called, but which is a collaborative project across several MDBs. If, if uh, a, a, a sort of common framework were to be adopted for measuring impact by the MDBs, I think that would be a huge step forward, not, not just for the MDBs, but I think for the, the finance community as a whole. Um, so I do encourage that because once, I mean, given that this group seems to agree on, on impact as a change in human well-being as a result of the enterprise's activities and to be derived through appropriate and, and disclosed and, and uh, well-argued attribution logic. Um, if that could be agreed, then we could then go to the next stage, which is, okay, <laughs> to address Dean's problem, how do you get stuff off the table? I think the key there is materiality, because at some point, if you use the, the monetary yardstick, uh, uh, yes, it may be crude. It, it is certainly not uh, uh, a license for trade-offs, because you can't trade off human capital belonging to, belonging to one group with natural capital belonging to the world, with produced capital belonging to a private entity. It's not, but at least it gives you a sense of size, and it tells you what is immaterial and therefore can be taken off the table, all other things being equal. So I think if we can agree on, on a common framework for uh, measuring impacts across the MDDs, a common approach towards using materiality as the yardstick 
for removing things from the table, which is very important. I think we could make quite a few steps in the right direction of a meaningful assessment of impacts based on materiality, based on economic logic, um, which would be a start. Yes, there are lots of things which cannot be captured by economics. I mean, you know, why do we have a Gini coefficient? So we, we, we can figure out quite a lot with the economic simplification, but yes, there are other things that you need to keep, keep a track of, but at least let's take step one and then hope for um, some rationale for step two. All right, thank you. So that's step one. Uh, Dean, what do you reckon? What, uh, where, where should we go to make things better? For the, for the for-profit space, I think the key issue that I um, observe a lot is the lack of recognizing impact evaluation as a decision tool going forward, yeah. not an exercise in accountability. And that yeah. leads mm -hmm. to a basic econ 101 mm -hmm. market failure in public goods, yeah. right? And yeah. The knowledge generated for what, what does have positive impact um, is, um, should be useful for the for your next investments, but for other people's next investments. And if it's only thought of as an accountability exercise, then people do the math and they say, well, if I'm going to invest, you know, $2 million. And why should I then spend, you know, 20% of my money on, on studying impact? And the answer is, well, because, you know, $10 million is going to go into this in the next five years, 10 years. And that's what you're investing in is to find out how to guide the future decisions. And that's a that's a key mindset change in the way to think about the, the leverage and the public good of knowledge that the MDBs can play a role in. Thank you very much. Beata, you're, you've been in the EBRD now for what, a year and a half or something. So you're, you're a, an insider, but we're still with an outsider's uh, set of eyes, which is always very, very useful. Uh, where, where do you think we're, we're doing the right thing and, and where do you think MDBs have, have got to do a bit better? So I think at the EBRD, we are doing well in terms of having clearly defined objectives. Um, we have a coherent, internally consistent framework that expresses this ob these objectives. And we use this framework to discipline our investments. And moreover, because this framework is flexible, we can adjust it as we shift our priorities across these objectives. So I think the system of transition impact, the six transition qualities works quite well. Where we could do better is on communicating our impact to the outside world. And here, you know, transition qualities are our internal language. And I think we need to find a different language, a different way of communicating to the outside world. This does not mean throwing out transition qualities. It means finding a better communication tool, right? I'm a great believer in tool, one instrument, one objective. So we need transition impact as an internal disciplining device, and we need something else uh, to communicate our impact. Um, I think we could do better on resolving this internal tension about our objective. Is it systemic change or is it jobs? Because sometimes we find ourselves in a situation that these two objectives are at odds, at least in the short run, just as with this digitalization of banking example. In the short run, this will destroy jobs, but it will create jobs in the medium and long run in other sectors. And finally, I think, you know, we need to do better on demonstrating to the world that our impact assessment is done through 
independent uh, in an independent ways that there is no internal interference there thank you yes thank you Beyoso. and uh, you make uh, an interesting point. i said we would come back to this question of jobs as a as a measurement uh, objective and clearly a lot of mdbs these days by shareholders are under a lot of pressure to measure job creation as part of the impact but I just wonder whether that's really possible. I mean, you've hinted at it. In fact, you've been quite explicit there, BR. So we, we were always told, I remember this debate we've had internally for a long time in the bank. No, 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 we can't, we can't really measure jobs because actually, if you look at it in the wrong time frame, we potentially are a job destroyer initially and before you become a job creator, especially where you've got uh, large enterprises being made more efficient. Uh, in the short term, you know, you may have job losses. So, so there was a real reluctance to do that. The pressure is still on. Do you think, uh, the three of you, that, it, that it's going to be possible to establish a way of making job creation a very effective uh, impact assessment tool? Dean? Um, I'm, so I, I have two basic thoughts. One is, you know, there's a the kind of canonical example used in, that I've, I've heard for years in economics about window breaking. Hmm. Um, that, you know, you basically, you know, if you take a, a firm that's building windows, um, and putting windows in place and hires 10,000 people to put to place windows, um, you don't get to count that as creating 10,000 jobs if the first thing you did is went and broke windows in order to in order to hire people to replace the window. Um, and that's a simple way of saying is you have to look at the full picture and and you know that's and if if what you're doing is creating jobs at your firm, but you're then you know in the simplest example, taking jobs away from other firms and moving people over to your firm, then you know, you don't get to count that. And that's not an easy thing to know. And then, and then the second issue is the one you mentioned, which is, you know, what if, what if your innovation is actually labor reducing in terms of um, the efficiency of the capital with respect to labor? Um, it might have long run growth benefits from a more efficient economy that creates jobs in a very, you know, kind of, um, you know, um, comprehensive way, but it's going to be difficult to track. So these are, you know, those those to me render usually job tracking as as the wrong metric, unless and here's the big unless something about what the firm is doing is actually explicitly trying to improve labor markets. Is it is it some is it something that, uh, that you can actually say, look, we do have market failures in labor. It is about search. It is about job retention and quality of jobs and things of this nature that, that create labor market frictions. Is there something this firm is doing differently that actually improves labor markets? And if that's the case, then make your case. And then that's, that's a much clearer case. But most things that fall into this rubric where people are counting jobs don't, don't actually have that argument. So okay. I would, I would yeah. usually stay away from it. Oh, great. Very clear. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Dean Pavan. Two points there. Firstly, I do agree with Dean that one has, one has to be very careful on this. So at the same time, there are two, two other things to bear in mind. One is that very often, especially in the developing world, um, employment is, is a, a deep subject of, of state policy. And, and therefore, you will find that focus filtering through uh, to the development banking world, whether we like it or not. Um, so one has to sort of recognize that and then uh, work one's way accordingly. The other side to this, the, the, the other point I'll make is that very often the connection between public goods and, and jobs isn't recognized. I'll give you one example of that. Natural capital is, and its ecosystem services are, are a big chunk of the GDP of the poor. If you were to actually measure household income as, as my old project team and, and my colleagues there had done, uh, 
in India and in Indonesia, finally twice in Indonesia and Vietnam. In all such cases, we found that the, the value of ecosystem services coming to the households by way of not just um, gathering of timber and fuel wood for the home, but actually small small scale economies like rattan gathering and, and, and growing stuff and harvesting from the forest and so on and, and fisheries. These are all economically invisible because they're basically direct access to the forest by local tribal communities. And yet nobody accounts for them when they're lost. So the, the loss of livelihoods and the loss of value of livelihoods as a result of the loss of natural capital isn't accounted for. On the flip side, if you are accounting for those livelihoods, then you get a, a signal from that accounting that you should be a bit more careful in, in drafting development policy and being more careful about how you treat natural capital within that development policy. So I think there, there's some other dimensions to this whole issue of the conundrum of jobs. Now, I mentioned these two, two examples because development banking does get involved in this uh, and, gets, and gets drawn into it and sucked into it, probably for the right reasons, because you have to support uh, state policies and, and you have to recognize them as you indeed do natural capital and the role that it has as a significant part. And by the way, again, economic estimates for what they're worth, uh, the three examples we had, sorry, Brazil as well, was uh, from memory 47% plus minus in India, 75% uh, for $100 million, well, 100 million people in Indonesia, and uh, almost 89% on average in, in the Bahia state and northeastern parts of Brazil. So these are pretty significant components of the livelihood incomes, the, the household incomes of the poor, uh, we have to recognize. So these are some of the other sort of areas on uh, how to how to try and recognize livelihoods. I'll close by saying that I must beg to disagree with many of my, I'm from India, so I beg to disagree with many of many Indian economists who will keep saying, no matter what, that it's the solution is industrialization. Well, I just like to point out to them very politely that if you account for the total number of jobs in, in small scale farming uh, and, and gathering from, uh, from the forest, that's something like 280 million people 280 million jobs. And the, the total number of jobs in, let's say, the automotive sector is 15 million. The total jobs in steel is about 6 million. The total in IT services is 7 million. So exactly how many cars and, and programs are you going to have to make and write to be able to replace 280 million jobs? The only solution to small-scale farming and the jobs that are there is better small-scale farming, which means lower risk, higher sustainable yield, and fairer prices. And all your policies should be focused on that and not trying to convert my country into some kind of industry for the presumed population of Mars, because clearly the population of Earth doesn't need that output. Alan, thank you very much indeed. And if you're an Indian economist uh, watching this, by the way, maybe yes. you'd like to respond. Uh, please, you know how do. to do that. Just actually for anybody who wants to ask a question uh, on Facebook, you can put it into uh, the comment section. And here on Zoom, uh, you can also put it in chat function. We'd love your questions and we'll come to some of them in uh, probably about 10 or 15 minutes time. Uh, Beata, jobs. You started this by mentioning it. Carry on. <laughs> jobs. So I think creating jobs is not an objective is not the objective. The objective is well-being. Mm. Jobs are just a means to achieving well-being, not the only one, right? And, and we hope that uh, systemic impact we foster to, by pushing countries to become more competitive, more green, more well-governed, um, more inclusive will ultimately 
translate into better well-being. Now, Dean has given this example of firm that creates jobs and also changes labor market, somehow leads to improvement in labor markets. That's in my mind, systemic impact. And we do it by working with countries to introduce certifications in vocational training, right? We, we help create better employment opportunities, just to speak directly to Pavan's point. The objective is not jobs, the objective is creating better jobs and ultimately yes. contributing to well-being of people. Right, thank you very much indeed, Beata. Um, Pavan, when you started off uh, on your opening comments uh, a short while ago, you said you'd like to give a few case studies uh, of, of uh, impact measurement and impact assessment. Uh, have you got some that come to mind? Some yeah. some thoughts of uh, yeah. yeah, a couple. I mean, just a couple of examples, and 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 I give these examples because they were complex. They took my team of 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 uh, engineers and, and economists like between five to six months in each case to actually complete these projects, but it was worth it. And of course, now we have a platform that that does a lot of these calculations um, uh, online. But uh, example one is is Sviaskog. Sviaskog is Sweden's largest forestry company. Um, they had a peculiar, uh, they, they cover 14% of Sweden's forests. They had a peculiar challenge with their public owners that they're owned by the government of Sweden, that their profits were considered insufficient and no recognition of the public goods value that this forestry company was generating in terms of carbon storage because of its policies, uh, in terms of water uh, 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 cycling function of the forest, given that they are interspersed with agriculture, or indeed, in terms of the uh, when we calculated it based on um, uh, based on uh, the visits, the the uh, almost four billion Swedish krona worth of value of free access to their forest to the public. So they have this Allemans Recht concept where everyone can walk into the forest and gather mushrooms, bilberries, lingonberries, whatever, and camp and enjoy themselves, and it's free. And this is a this is a privately owned forest. It's owned by the company. So they, are allow, they allow that and because that is the custom. So there's a social capital value of that. When we calculated all of these values, two excellent messages emerged, which is the big picture of Sviaskog, which their CEO and their management team took forward both to the NGO community who were on the other side attacking them for being anti-biodiversity and so on. And on, on the, the form of to their own government owners asking to be recognized for what they are, which is a generator of carbon value when we accounted for that, the total economic value was not $1.1 billion of profits, but actually 10, sorry, 1.1 billion kroners of profits, but more like 10 billion kroners of social value comprising carbon, water, and, and social benefits of access to the forest calculated using the usual economic, uh, total economic value approach. And uh, that's one example. So another example is Yarra Valley Water, that's Melbourne's water utility, the largest one. And they used impact valuation as in using exactly the same approach as the forestry company, the same four capitals approach that, that I spoke of. Um, in order to be able to uh, better quantify and recognize the value that they were providing for a whole range of social actions to try and save water. Melbourne, as you're aware, is, is water scarce and has been uh, chronically so for a long time. And at the same time, they're also the most livable city, uh, voted six times over by the Economist Intelligence Unit. And so you can imagine that a water utility in, in Melbourne is a little bit scared about losing that rating. 
uh, or being the cause of losing that rating. So they had to do whatever they could to improve social awareness, public awareness of water saving, education programs, actually educating the young by giving them, for example, water uh, captured, uh, so basically water bottles, which they can fill up uh, in, in little soda water fountains. They're careful about that and they avoid drinking Coke and Pepsi and actually have uh, medical uh, and, and save medical costs for their parents as well. So it's all, all the whole range of like, there were literally 35 different activities that were engaged and we valued, uh, measured and valued the top 10 and gave them a recommendation on how to go forward. They, they took it up, they invested in those programs. They set themselves a target of increasing social value by, by, by doubling their social value creation between 2016 and 2020 and they achieved it as well. So this, this engendered a whole thinking that projects in Yarra Valley Water now get evaluated based on their overall capital's impacts, not just the return on investment, but in fact, in terms of their social return on investment, accounting for this. So they now have a little machine that helps them do these SROI calculations, which has been set up by us. Um, and it's led to a change in the thinking of the company and, and how it serves its customers and how it uh, encourages and accounts for the value generated for customers, not just for the bottom line uh, that it generates. So these, okay. so these, are, these are things of uh, yeah. great satisfaction that you know it can be done, it is complicated, yes, it works. No, I, I just thinking about that, you know, I, I like the sound of both those examples because of the broad approach they take actually to, yeah. to, to the measurement and, the, and the, wider, the wider approach they take. Yeah. Um, that, that brings me then to, to some thoughts as, as to are there traps, obvious traps that we should avoid uh, in taking this measurement uh, of impact discussion forward? You know, are there things that it's unwise to be led down the road of when we're thinking of this issue and to be distracted by? Beata, what do you think? Well, so we should follow a, a few principles, right? So perhaps there are kind of activities um, that we engage in, um, which have an impact, which have a positive impact because it has been documented in the literature time after time, right? There, there is a body of work showing evidence from different countries um, that, you know, upgrading roads helps people uh, commute um, to cities which help and helps them find employment, for instance. So in a sense, perhaps there is no point uh, reinventing the wheel, the wheel and doing our own evaluation. Um, then perhaps, um, you know, we may want to engage in uh, randomized controlled trials if we engage in innovative projects. Dean talked about this, that MDBs are also in the business of knowledge management, knowledge creation. If we have an innovative project and we can show that it works and we can say something about its returns, this, is, this information is public goods and it will lead other donors to engage in similar activities, right? I think the big challenge is to find um, a balance between being rigorous and assessing projects that matter, right? And, uh, you know, and not spending excessive amounts of money on evaluation, money that could actually be used to help people. Yes, that's a, that's a big question of the resources that you put into it, which is a, an interesting point. Um, Dean, what, what do you think are the traps we should avoid? So I think um, building on, on what Vita just said, I think 
the challenge is um, doing more evaluation in some places and less in others. Um, you know, and, and it, it could be that that also does mean, an, you know, overall a larger investment when you're thinking about, um, you know, using things like retained earnings to say, you know, like, look, we're going to invest um, the, the, the profits where each project pays a little tax, so to speak, and it accumulates through retained earnings. And then that, and then that's what you can use to create leverage for future, future trans, um, for future transactions to have better information about what's working and what's not. Um, but I think going back to where I started, the, you know, there undoubtedly are a lot of situations where one could be more rigorous about how to do an impact evaluation. It's, let's take it, it's, let's say it's a financial institution doing some sort of um, new, new, new digital lending expansion, new digital money, money expansion, expansion. And it's actually very well suited to doing a randomized control trial. And there might be some other situations where you say, look, look, we're going to do 15 of these investments or 10, but you don't set up a randomized control trial in every one of them. But what you don't do then, and this is where you want to go into the lesser, is um, is, is, is do, like to use the comparison of earlier, you know, kind of what we would call before after tracking of people and just saying, well, before they were earning $12, now they're earning 15 and we'll give, we'll give entire credit to digital money for them going from 12 to 15. That's just, that's silly. And so, so there might be a lot of situations where doing less is actually better, focusing on different questions where evidence can actually bear fruit, like who's being reached, and then allocating the scarce resources towards the settings where you can actually do better in terms of measurement. And, and, then, and then it feeds into other things that other people have said here, which is let's just remember that this is all about building evidence and building a mosaic so that in a new setting, you can kind of look to what's been learned elsewhere and build the best ex ante to the investment model of what you think the impact is based on the evidence and the theories that are out there. And that's, that's gonna happen if there's, if there's been prior investment in, in careful evaluation of a few, a few settings here and there and there, um, and nothing's exactly gonna be the same, but it allows you to triangulate and come up with what is the, the, the best kind of ex ante analysis that you can do based on solid evidence from elsewhere. Okay, thanks, Tina. Pavan, what do you make of the traps question? Yeah, uh, there are quite a few traps, actually. Then I'll just name two, which are the most common ones. It's people sometimes discover, hallelujah, let's do impact valuation, and then off they go, and you find whole loads of impact valuations without them ever having defined the purpose of the valuation. Why am I doing this other than it's interesting? So there, there is a tendency to, to go that route, and I've seen any number of ecosystem service valuations by chemical companies and so on which I just look at it in amazement, wondering what's going on here. Um, so please establish the purpose of valuation before you engage in the valuation and, and the impact. In other words, is the purpose that you wish to invest in a social change or invest in some natural capital or invest in some carbon, carbon storage sequestration, whatever, and you wish to evaluate two or three alternative ways of doing this, and this is your route, that's fine. Uh, so go ahead. Uh, another, another trap that I find very often is that people overbelieve the numbers that they're generating. So yes, it's really important to bring things onto a common plane to assess materiality, as I mentioned earlier. And economics is a good way of assessing materiality because it's at the end of the day, the economic value. But there are other factors. Um, the dollar uh, provided or, or or earned by, let's say, a poor family in Ethiopia is not the same as 
a dollar earned for doing the same activity in the same context, development context, in a more developed nation like Malaysia, for the sake of argument. Um, and, and equally, a dollar invested in natural capital where it's scarce may be more important in a fundamental way than a dollar invested in education in the same place or vice versa, right? So uh, economics may or may not be the only yardstick for, for measuring what action is required. So this is where judgment is, is needed. And this is where um, multi-criteria evaluations tend to be more valuable than just pure valuation. Jonathan, if, if, if I may jump in. Um, to me, a big trap is outsourcing credibility by hiring you know, a consulting company that will tell you that per one euro invested in this sector, you have you know, created X jobs and improved productivity by X percent in directly in the same sector and by so much in other sectors. Right? Because you know, it's very easy to enter the fantasy land with, with those numbers. So I, I would much more believe an analysis, a rigorous analysis of one project, let's say SME lending to women-owned businesses in one country, and taking the lessons learned there and you know, saying, well, in a similar country or country with a similar income level, we could expect similar results rather than trying um, to have these really, really crude coefficients. Yeah, that, that, that leads quite neatly, uh, Beata, into something I was just thinking about, which is, you know, we hear a lot about greenwashing, obviously. Uh, you know, are you worried, the three of you, about impact washing, if I could use that rather ugly phrase, that, it, you know, there's an easy way to, to game the system, uh, whether you use an outside external uh, help to do that or, or do it to yourself internally. You know, the, the potential uh, approach to green to impact washing uh, could be, you know, used quite widely uh, by mm. some players if they wish to. Uh, Pavan, why don't you go first? Yeah. Well, firstly, to define what is greenwashing, a friend of mine uh, in this area defined it as spending 99% of your time talking about 1% of your impacts. That is his definition of greenwashing. <laughs> and uh, let me say that in the space of impact and particularly from the buy side, from the investor side, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, this is already happening. The, the greenwash, you know, you use the word impact washing. I call it eyewash, eye for impact, but also eyewash. So eyewash is very, very common. And uh, this is one of the challenges of us of finding time and time again that companies uh, and indeed portfolio managers are either creating their own ESG rating methodology, which is, if you can think of a better conflict of interest there, creating their own ESG rating methodology to rate their own portfolios, or corporations literally cherry picking from among 600 available options on which one they look best in, and they keep changing it from year to year. So these are some of the things that sadly are happening, but I think this is where uh, perhaps the MDB world can really step in and, and provide some, some sense of, of uh, um, discipline and, and balance by saying that, look, there are certain principles that one needs to follow. Follow those principles, then, then look at the guidelines in terms of how you evaluate impact and then eventually standards. So I think setting in place principles, getting the guidelines in place and moving towards standards is the way forward. Otherwise, we will be prone to eyewash and greenwash. Impact is in the eye of the beholder. So that's uh, right. <laughs> uh, Beata, impact washing. 
No, I, I wonder oh, if I may throw a question at Pavan. Yeah, is yeah. impact washing more difficult if you are focusing on single indicators defined in a transparent way? Right? So there's still the issue of attribution, but at least you have one indicator that somebody could try to verify whether or not that was your impact. I think the challenge institutions like ours are facing is that you know, we are expected to summarize our impact from a range of very different activities into you know, one number. We are expected to distill it to one number at the country level. So, so how do you aggregate, you know, reduction in CO2 emissions with introduction of vocational training certifications and, um, you know, increased innovation through imports that were supported by our trade finance instruments. And, you know, even if you do not attempt to do anything fishy, the fact that you are aggregating these very different activities and distilling the impact into one figure makes you look suspect to the outside world. And I, I don't know what the solution here is, right? Because yeah. this pressure to, to have one number never stops. It doesn't stop, yeah. No, you, you're quite right, Beata, and that, that pressure will continue. But in, in some ways, one can understand and even sympathize with that pressure because at the end of the day, you know, governments will be looking at comparing performance and performance has to be measured in the aggregate. At the same time, I will say that, I mean, we can have a longer conversation, maybe take another hour, which Jonathan doesn't have on, on this topic. But I think uh, I would suggest looking at a combination of two routes. One is that for the project level, set targets, because that's where the specific target, as in if it is your objective to add to, in, to uh, the economy of a particular stressed region, then you can measure that as a specific objective that becomes a target. You don't have to worry about everything else, just focus on the GDP of that particular zone, that area that you, or focus on, like I said, I mean, if it's, if you have a target on, on education or health or environment, focus that particular, that particular variable that will give you the simplest way of measuring that, but that's always project-based. The point is you will have hundreds of projects, if not thousands, and each of them will have different objectives and each are a different affecting a different dimension of human well-being, be it environmental or social or human or health related or, or income related. So how, they, how do you aggregate? That is a viable, that, that is a valid question for any government or donor to ask you. Um, that leads to this whole discipline of impact valuation. And I think the only way to, in, to uh, enforce that discipline in a way that doesn't create chaos is honestly for the MDVs to get together and agree on one framework. And if it is a four capital framework, uh, a number of uh, senior economists who are dead and gone will bless you, such as, <laughs> uh, such as uh, Kenneth Arrow and, and others before him, uh, because this is the result of their work. And I'm in my business, in my work, I try and respect that, uh, that ontology as far as I can. So if I may jump in, Jonathan. So we have a methodology for aggregating our transition impact. We have our portfolio transition impact. The problem is that it's hard to people outside to comprehend because it's our internal, internally consistent methodology that we have worked out given our very challenging mission of systemic change. And there is this tension between yeah. you know, doing a good job at aggregation, 
versus communicating the results to the public. Yes, yeah. I, I, always, I always think, you know, that uh, we're not the only one, but all MDBs, we are like religious sects in a way. We speak our own internal language, uh, following our own religious rules. Uh, but of course, it is incomprehensible to anybody who is not yes. a member of the sect. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> some, I mean, uh, you know, from a theoretical yeah. point, one thing to realize is some of this is, is, is simply intractable, given that it requires establishing something about social preferences. Yeah. And these things not only um, are going to change over time as norms change, but, you know, to the, but are obviously very heavily weighted on how we think about issues of social justice and prioritization of different groups. And that's, um, there's, no, there's no work, there's no one solution to that. So I'm not, you can put in parameters and then from those parameters build a model. Huh. But you know, to the extent that you need to um, put a weight on whether the poorest of the poor is better off by $5 is better or worse than making, you know, someone a little further up the tranche better off by $3. Uh, like uh. How you weight that, uh, I'm sorry, but you know, there's lots of ways you can go about thinking about putting weights on that, but there's clearly no one kind of right answer to that. So, I, um, so you can have a framework, but you're going to end up with some inputs in there where you, you, you know, smart, good, passionate, valued, moral people disagree. <laughs> and, and right. So I, I'm a little skeptical of like this idea that like we have this, you know, kind of one system, so to speak, that mm. rises up. Mm. All right. Now, listen, time's winged uh, chariot to quote uh, Shakespeare is getting away from us. So let's try and take a few uh, audience questions. We've had one from Louise Dan uh, on Facebook. Do MDBs focus impact or measure specifically the poorest or most vulnerable members of society? This might prevent the inequalities widening even as the majority get richer. So that's about uh, the equality question when you're assessing impact. So who'd like to take a crack at that one? Um, I'm happy. I mean, that, yeah. literally, that's a perfect question for what I was just talking about. Um, you know, that should be part of the calculation um, when we think about impact. It's, it's impact on whom? And that's if you want to now compare different investments and, you know, and you know that one has a 27% return and the other 12% return, you need to ask, but who, you know, who are the recipients of that, of that well-being and how are you trading off those groups? And that's, that's yeah, absolutely critical for the MDBs to think about. I mean, the priority should be starting at the bottom and going up, but that doesn't mean it's, um, there aren't trade-offs. I mean, that's, you know, um, and if there's in, if there's things that can be done that make the the tenth to twentieth you know decile of poverty radically better off, um, there is a point at which you say, yeah, let's do that, rather than put all resources into the zero to ten. Yeah, correct. I mean, this is common sense, right? So, but how do you what that number is for that that trade off is? That's 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 not an easy answer. That's not easy. Pavan or Bielsa, do you want to come in on this question? I think, I mean, this, uh, I'd agree with what Dean has said, actually, but I, let me just, in the interest of time, pass on um, to Beata. Um, I agree with Dean, but let me throw um, a different question at you, right? Right now, um, we are, right now, inequality of opportunities is one of our priorities. And if you think about inequality of opportunities, this forces you to think about what difference, what share of differences in outcomes is attributable to effort and what is attributable to circumstances, 
right? Because you would want the outcomes to depend on effort, but not on circumstances. Now, what constitutes circumstances? Um, you, you, know, you know, it's easy sometimes if you are born in a remote area where there are no good schools, right? Then the answer may be clear. Um, but what about uh, genetics? You know, how, how far do we go in defining circumstances? And, you know, what does it imply for meritocracy? Should we still be supporting meritocracy? That's a very interesting economic efficiency question, actually, isn't it? Uh, let's move on. Uh, Jens Lundsgaard asks a question, and it's probably one for you, BR. So should EBRD revise our transition impact metrics in order to uh, collaborate? I think it means involve private impact investors, or would that only add to the confusion? So I think we need to be very clear in our minds about our objective, right? Our objective is systemic impact. That's not necessarily always the objective of, of private investors, right? They, they may want to do green investments, but, you know, that's just, that's, that's very different from having systemic impact on inequality, on labor markets, on competitiveness. So I think that would very much limit it. Second is, you know, the, the reason why we have transition qualities is to discipline our lending activities, right? Because we have these six qualities and we can turn one dial up, one dial down. And in this way, we steer the projects towards areas uh, where we want to see more activity. Just, you know, to, to for instance, to match our, to achieve our um, target of 50% green investment. So if we throw out um, transition qualities and if we just focus on the approach of private investors, we would lose this internal disciplining device. And I think that would be the, the biggest cost to us. Yeah, it's, uh, I was gonna uh, tongue in cheek say that, you know, it, you can't sacrifice uh, quality at, at the expense of quantity. Um, but basically, part of the challenge I see, uh, Beata, you facing and the other MDBs facing is that um, the, uh, the criteria that you have, in your case, competitive, inclusive, well-governed, green, resilient, and integrated, uh, they're, of course, where you want to go. They, they, they define the direction in which you wish to move, and that's the discipline that you wish to engage to instill in your asset writers, and that's admirable, right? But as a way of measuring, if you just look at these, these six terms, um, Green is, can be defined in terms of impact and uh, um, inclusive in a different way you can measure impacts, resilient, tough, well-governed as a driver, integrated as a driver and competitive as a driver. So you have a combination of drivers, outcomes and impacts within just your six um, broad areas of, of focus, your, your, the, the, the behavior uh, uh, criteria that you wish your asset writers to engage. And it's going to be a, a hard sell to try and convince other MDBs or, or others to sort of follow that logic. So I think, but then this is an internal logic. This is about creating culture in, in, your, in, in your organization and ensuring that it delivers the kind of impacts that you wish to generate. Measuring the impacts needs to be done on a consistent basis. And I, I see no reason why you shouldn't and the MDBs are the next in line. I mean, at the end of the day, we've had three, Three, four, yeah, three 
uh, rounds of the Inclusive Wealth Report, which has measured externalities at the national level, at the macro level, uh, through the Inclusive Wealth Report of Patidas Gupta. has been done three times. And uh, uh, we have any number of examples at the micro level, including from my firm and, and a few others, of measuring it at that level. So you are somewhere in between, and uh, you're a wonderful aggregator. So why would you not want to follow the same approach for measuring impacts? This is not uh, an either or. This is not use impacts at an aggregate level or follow your six discipline, uh, disciplinary drivers. This is about and. And I think that's what the message that I'd like to leave you with. Okay, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, and there's one that fits again neatly into that sort of discussion. It comes from Martin McKee, a question. Uh, investments are nearly always part of a wider system or supply chain, which can make impact attribution difficult. Does the panel have any advice on how to set boundaries for assessments? Should different impacts have different assessment boundaries? Uh, Pavan, this is probably another one where you might want to kick off on this. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time with it because this is a big area, but let me just say one simple example. Uh, the first boundary question, value chain boundary question that will come to you is what should we do full value chain accounting? Should we do cradle to gate? Should we do cradle to grave? Um, and why? Well, you know, the sad thing is, and the good thing is that the answer is different depending on who you are. If you happen to be a portfolio manager, and if you start asking for cradle to, to grave accounting, let's say you have shares in, for the sake of argument, uh, BHP Billiton, which is a mining company, um, but and and you are calculating that, and then you you also have shares in Volkswagen. Sorry, you also have shares in 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 uh, Jindal Steel, for the sake of argument, who makes steel from the iron ore that you mine, and you also have shares in Volkswagen, who imports the steel that you've manufactured, and you also have shares in Uber, which drives the cars that Volkswagen. You will have accounted for the. Uh, mining impacts of BHP Billiton four times over simply because of the nature of your portfolio. So clearly the answer there is please do operational impact measurement and then take it on a portfolio level. On the flip side, if you are a, a manufacturer and wish to be better, uh, best of breed in that particular area, no matter what it is, be it manufacturing cars or, or mining, and you wish, wish to have, wish to use the full value chain as your way of assessing whether you are or are not best of breed, that's what you should do. And thankfully, both alternatives are available and there are, there are frameworks and methodologies available for both. So the same context uh, can, sorry, a different context can generate different answers for the same question. Dean or uh, Biasi, do you want to come in on this question? Sure, my, my instinct is that usually you probably should ignore it. Um, but not all, I mean, there might be scenarios where you shouldn't, but I, I think of, you know, if we want to, most of the things that we want to look at, if you want to think about the positive impact are either going to come from externalities hmm. or through, um, through bottom of the pyramid in terms of like who is actually receiving a service and that otherwise wouldn't, or some other market failure that existed and that you're addressing. And it's, you know, I think in most cases, when you think about supply chain, that's probably not the case that there's some, that it's fitting any one of those three bins. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think most of the models for impact investing needs to, needs to be captured by one of those three things. Um, externalities being the most, the easiest environmental or, or stopping negative. Um, bottom of the pyramid all depends on price. Ultimately, you have to think about the price. There's a price at which you're selling to the poor and that's not good. <laughs> so that's a very, very context specific um, and, and fragile metric to use. Um, but um, 
but I think in a lot of those cases, I, I suspect that the, the supply chain argument does not meet one of those three. I, 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 you know, I'm sure there's examples someone can give me where that's not true. Um, the, the one other thing, can I say one other thing back to something yeah. else or no? Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there's a, um, a, a risk of dismissing the additionality issue too, a bit too quickly in this space. And it's a tricky one because it's very, very difficult to measure and understand and, and talk about. Um, but you know, one, one phrase that I heard from Kevin Starr once, who's one of the leaders of the Malago Foundation, said there's free money, cheap money, and real money. Um, it's a great phrase for thinking about the space. You know, free money is philanthropists. Cheap money should be what we're talking about. It's, it's you know, money to, to create a public good of some form that is being offered in some sort of concessionary way or add-on services are being added on top of it in order to kind of trigger some positive social change. But then real money is when the for-profits come in and, and there's a good investment and, and it has a financial return and, and that's not a place for EBRD to be or you know, World Bank or IFC or anybody. One last question then, uh, which has come in, which is from Anita Tachi who is inside the EBRD. And it's a, you know, I can understand absolutely where she's coming from. Um, how do you generalize findings of a few impact assessments for learning and transfer and apply them into other environments and uh, countries? And this, this comes to the point, obviously resources are scarce. You might do a few, but you want to apply them and the learnings from them more, more generally. Pavan. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are, there are ways of doing that. I and mean, I think, uh, I'm not trying to market what we do, but my firm is one of many firms that actually engages in this, providing education, providing platforms. We even have a corporate SAS platform. So anyone who wants to uh, play around and figure out their impacts. And by the way, the, the good news is that these things cost, they don't cost quarter million dollars as they used to in the old days. You can, you can pay ten fifteen thousand $15,000 and get an annual subscription and play around as much as you want. So there's, there's quite a lot available in the space now to learn about impacts and to use uh, a few standard approaches. Um, our approach for the sake of argument can give you impact valuations, not just in the four capitals, which are beloved of the United Nations and, and uh, uh, classical economists, but also along the 17 SDGs. So those who have a more development mindset can, can um, look at the SDG impacts and in other words, break up the capital's impacts into the relevant SDGs to which they, to which they, uh, which they are affecting. So there's quite a lot of um, um, available capacity around the world on this. So that's good news, basically. All right, thank you, Pavan. Um, Dean, I think, is back with us. So let, let's have yeah. some concluding thoughts uh, from the three of us. Dean, thanks for coming back. Look, we've had a, quite a long discussion around this. Uh, I know, Pavan and Beata, you might want to carry on for another hour afterwards. I'll leave you free to do that. Uh, but uh, what about a concluding next steps? Do you know, I, I think we've heard one substantive next step. Everybody you know, probably thinks it's a good idea if MDBs could come up with a, a single uh, approach to this, that would, that would be good. But uh, perhaps each of you, I could ask you for one next step each in this debate. So Dean, why don't you go first as you've re rejoined us? Sure, and the, the question posed in the chat, I think is, is perfect. And the, and the short answer is yes, there's, there's many settings where um, there could be for-profit firms that are doing something that make a, a social argument and, and it can be tested using a randomized control trial. And, we're seeing a lot of them. I've done many of them. Many others have done many, um, but you know we don't want to do all. Nobody, that's too many. But we do need more of it, and that should be the role of the the the, the players like EPRD and World Bank and IFC is to 
um, create that public good of knowledge to guide their own future decisions as well. Um, the, the one thing I blinked off before that I just wanted to finish the sentence was just like, yeah. you look into your left and your right and you're seeing for-profit investors who are not there for the social impact. It, it might be the time to, um, you know, get up and let someone else have your seat um, and say, okay, that's fine. This is great. You know, let the, the cheap money create those windows, create those opportunities. And maybe that's needed in order to, to validate a, a model of business and something of that nature. But then once real money is ready to play, then move on. Uh, Pavan, one next step. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, I think in, in, in addition to the sort of MDB, uh, a combined MDB community uh, framework, here's a thought. And Dean mentioned this as well, that once you start accounting for externalities, then pretty much all investing becomes impact investing because you're looking at the third party costs, the social costs, and sometimes the social benefits. So I think the uh, the second action I would suggest is a kind of a resolution amongst the MDBs to actually start um, a movement in favor of accounting for externalities, not just uh, for the companies that they support, not just for the projects that they support, but in a wider context. I think that was another ask that I would have. And I think your leadership will make a huge difference in this space. Okay, interesting. They also well, good, credible impact evaluation costs money. But we shouldn't think of this money as, you know, costs of investment. We should think of money spent on impact evaluation as investment in knowledge creation yeah. Yeah. and investment in public good, because other players uh, will be able to use the knowledge exactly. we created in order to help countries in need. All right, Beata, thank you very much, Pavan. And Dean, indeed, uh, thank you as well. And thank you, Odile, for joining us uh, earlier to introduce this session. Uh, thank you to everybody, the audience as well, for being with us. This episode, of course, is part of our hashtag EconTalk series. We're doing quite a lot of them. Please make sure you try to join us some of the others. We'll be posting a podcast of today's session a little later on. Uh, you can download it on iTunes and uh, reviewing it and rating it helps others to find our Econ Talks and other podcasts. So please do that. We'd love you to do that. Uh, I'm Jonathan Charles. Take care and uh, look after yourself and see you next time. You were listening to What is the Impact of MDB Lending? Brought to you by the EBRD.